Well, good morning, Providence family and uh, all of you who are new with us guests. We're so thrilled that you are here, that you have joined us. I hope that you have had a good week. Um, you know, there's a lot of people I know who are very anxious and there's a lot of people who are in need. In fact, I would just say to you, if you're in our uh, whole church family or a guest, uh, if, but if you have a personal need, uh, we want to be able to know about that so that we can help to meet that need. And so if you have a need or if you would like and can help to actually meet a need or if you want to give to help meet needs, uh, then you can go to pray.org and there's some various buttons on the main page uh, that, that will just offer you all the information that you need. Uh, but uh, I, I'm hopeful. Uh, I'm hopeful because I see God's grace in your lives. Uh, I want you to know, Providence family, that what I have seen over the last six weeks, and it's been six weeks, uh, I have no doubt that God is um, using this in the lives of people to draw people to himself. He has done that throughout all of history. Anytime he allows a crisis to take place in the world, he always uses it to draw people's hearts and attention to himself. And one of the things that I will remember of this time is when your faith and hope and love as a church family uh, was tested and proven to be genuine and sincere. I have seen your amazing generosity. I have seen your amazing care for people, how you have shared what you have with people. And I just want you to know I am so encouraged. Um, and I want to pray for us now that God would help us to endure. And so if you would, there in your homes, let's bow and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you that you are the one who has fully demonstrated to us what love looks like, and that while we were still sinners walking away from you, that you ran after us in love, not to crush us or to harm us, but to save us and redeem us and reconcile us and bring us back to yourself. We're so thankful for all the benefits that we receive because of Jesus. We're so thankful for forgiveness and acceptance and belonging. God, we thank you, God, that we have peace in our hearts because of you, and yet we confess to you God, that peace, many times in our day, it gets eroded by the things that we see. Fear in our heart and security in the world. Fear that we hear in the lives of others. God, we watch the news and it makes us anxious. We confess to you, God, our anxiety. And I pray that you would help us as a church family, Lord, to be so careful, to be so careful with people. God, would you help us in the concerns of our own life to remember that there's people all around us who are having to endure this crisis without the hope of eternal life, without the peace that comes from your presence. And I pray, Father, that you would help us as a church family to endure. I pray for those in our church family and in our, in our city who have physical needs, who have financial needs, who have who have needs for food and even, even shelter. Lord, would you help them to come and help us to connect with them? I, I pray that you would help us to, to help them meet needs. God, I pray, God, for our community. God, we know that the crisis that exists that we cannot see, God, it, it, Lord, it has its roots in deep soil, but then it it sprouts out in so many different ways. And, 
And I confess to you on behalf of our community, God, that Lord, that our sinfulness is on full display when, when forced to be together, we don't always treat each other right. And God, I pray for those right now who are weak and who are vulnerable. God, that you would help those with strength or to use that strength to meet the needs of those who are weak. And so I pray that you would give us endurance and I pray that you would use this word, this good word from Matthew chapter six, the words of Jesus himself to be able to speak into our heart and give us endurance and encouragement and hope. And so we look to you in faith. Would you speak through weakness? I pray for those in their, in their, in their homes and in their various rooms, wherever they're gathered as families or as individuals, whether it's here on Sunday or whether it's maybe sometime later in the week. God, I pray that you would use your word to, Lord, to dig down into our life and that you would help us to trust that as you dig, you dig with kindness. They would lead us to repentance. And so I pray that as a church family and as a community of people who are listening to this, that you would help each one of us to find peace, peace that is wrapped up in your presence that we can enjoy through your son, Jesus. We look to you in faith and we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to ask you to look with me at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to look at verse 25 to verse 34 as we are in a new series, Finding Peace. We all want peace, and yet the fact is, is that we're in moments of life, uh, peace is hard to find. And what we want to look at here is, how do you find peace in moments of anxiety? That's exactly where we're at. I don't need to tell you that these are anxious days. I looked this morning that 38,000 people have died of this virus or some cause or some contributing factor with this virus. There's people all around the world who are sick. There's people who are insecure and who are, who are scared. There are people who have been um, now unemployed for a period of weeks. There are people who fear even even the loss of their freedoms and the loss of their finances and the loss of their security and the loss of the possibility for them to be able to retire. We're anxious about our children. We're anxious about many things. There's many people who have had to forego uh, really significant life events like prom or like graduation or, or like birthday parties or, or trips or even mission trips. There's a lot of things that are happening in the world. There's a lot of us who are anxious about a coming election. There's some of us who are anxious about overreach from our own government and what it means to the rights that we have as citizens of this country. And what's interesting is that we were already a very anxious people. I read this week that in America alone, in the last 100 years, that every generation is now three times more likely to battle significant problems with anxiety and depression than the previous generation. That's a remarkable thing. It's almost as if we live in a vice. In fact, if you look at this shot, it's, 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 it's really uh, a picture of what it looks like to live in the world today. Even in America, where we enjoy the constitutional right to pursue happiness, over 100 million people are prescribed antidepressants every year. There's something wrong. 
It's almost as if our life and the lives of our children are placed in a vice and the world continues to tighten a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more to see how much it takes before we break. And so many people are breaking. Now, here's the reality. When you add a global pandemic to a heart that is already crowded with concern, it makes peace hard to find. And Jesus was aware of this, not only for us, but his first audience. There was an enormous crowd of people. And we're told in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus began preaching and he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. And he began in Matthew chapter 5, and it goes all the way to Matthew chapter 7, to lay out the value system of his kingdom that he was coming to actually bring to pass. The kingdom of Christ. And he begins to lay out the different values, things that would be important not only to the king, but also to the citizens of this kingdom. That those who would trust Christ, that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 would resemble our life, our faith, our thinking, our praying, our giving, our anxiety. And it's in this context, when Jesus was up on a mountain or up on a hilltop, and there was people all around him, that he began halfway through his sermon to look into their eyes, and he knew that they were anxious about many things, similar to us. And this is what Jesus said. Verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles Seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so Jesus is dealing with anxiety and he wants us to know how to find peace. And it's interesting out of everything that I just read, I believe that there's two primary things that Jesus does for us. There's lots of applications that flow from these, but there's really two big ideas that I want to show you this morning. The first is this, is that Jesus commands us not to worry. He commands us. He doesn't Offer it as a suggestion. He says, do not do this. He commands us not to worry. 
In verse 25, he says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. In verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious. In verse 34, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Do not be anxious. Now, it's really important for us to identify the kind of anxiety that Jesus is addressing here. You see, just like many other words that have multiple meanings, well, we use the word anxiety, even the Bible uses the word anxiety and talks about it in a little different way. You see, we all know now that there's this thing called clinical anxiety. It's where you can actually be diagnosed as somebody who suffers the weight of the world, anxiety in your heart. It's marked by feelings of, 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 of a panic or of tension or of even pressure within the chest that's due to overwhelming stress in our life. I don't believe that's the kind of anxiety that Jesus is addressing. However, I believe the kind that he is addressing can lead to that. There's a second kind of anxiety that we find in the Bible, and it may surprise you that I say it this way, but it's more of a noble kind of anxiety. We find it in Paul. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, he says this. He says, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, what he's talking about in this passage is that he is a church planner, which means that he goes into a city, he shares the gospel, people believe a church is formed, and then he has to leave that town in order to go to another town or another city or village in order to preach there. Well, he's in a place to where he's now looking and he's sharing with the church in Corinth all the pressures that he feels. And here he says, and you know, in all those churches that are out there that are so valuable to God and that are so valuable to me, who are under attack, they're under attack from so many different ways. He says, I carry within my own heart this anxiety, this this loving concern for people that are valuable to me and people who are valuable to God. You see, anytime you love something of value, that's a noble thing, well, it's right to have a noble kind of concern for that thing or for that person. And so if you're in your house and you look out the window and you see a truck barreling down the road and you see a child in the road, it's a noble thing to feel a sense of anxiety or loving concern that propels us to either scream or to run as fast as we can in order to rescue that child. Jesus is dealing with a different kind of anxiety. In this passage, Jesus is actually addressing this worrisome anxiety that dismisses or displaces our trust in God, when our mind is actually torn between the concerns of the real world and concerns in an imaginary world that's built by our own fear. You see, this imaginary world where worry begins to actually propel, it comes in waves, what happens is we start to think about the worst-case scenario. In fact, our imaginary world is actually built by our worst case fears. And then what happens is it's reinforced by these waves of worry where we're we're constantly adding more possibilities of doom to the situation. And what's interesting is that this imaginary world is actually impervious to God's grace. You see, God doesn't give you a job in a fake world. 
He helps you find a job in the real world. He doesn't save your children in an imaginary world. He saves them in a real world. You see, God's grace, it works in the real world. Well, here's what happens is that when we actually see something and then we begin to find this anxiety that displaces God, which means that it takes God and he removes God from our situation. Where God at one time was there and in reality he is there, but in our own heart and our mind, we say, I have to deal with the situation. I have to find a solution. I have to be the savior of this because there is no savior. There is no solution. God is not near. You see, God's grace doesn't work in this world. This imaginary world that's reinforced by waves of worry. And so Jesus comes and he says, don't do this. Three times he says, do not be anxious about your life in this worrisome kind of way that removes God from the equation of your heart. And so then what he does is throughout the text, He wants to tell us what worry does or what it proves. Meaning he says, don't do this. And this is why. The first reason we shouldn't do this is because worry actually proves that we have lost sight of our purpose. The reason that we're here on the earth. In verse 25, look what it says. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now, he doesn't say, don't worry about your third beach house and your yacht down in Florida. He's talking about essentials to staying alive. We need food. We need water. We need clothing in order to stay alive. But here's his point. That even with the essentials, is not life more than eating and drinking? In other words, is life not more than filling our body covering our body and keeping our body alive. You see, he starts at the base level of necessary, the essentials of life to stay alive in order to capture everything else that we would worry about, like our job and our money and our retirement and our children, everything else. He says at the base level, the most basic level of your life is to stay alive. It's to eat and drink to stay warm. He says, but even this is not the point of life. See, this may surprise some of you, but the point of your life is not to make it to tomorrow. You see, God created us with a life purpose. There's a reason that you're here. And it's more than just trying to stay alive for another day. God tells us that his purpose for our life is to actually know him. It's to enjoy him. It's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. It's to have a relationship with him. And here's the deal. You see, God, in this moment in time, he is shaking in the world everything that can be shaken in order to prove what cannot be shaken. You see, you know what? You have probably never worried, had this anxious worry where you're throwing waves of worry at the existence of God. Is this virus going to kill God? You probably haven't worried about that. And the reason is because God is unshakable. Now, what we worry about is everything that is shakable. But what God is showing us is this, is that if it's true that God is unshakable and, there's the, and therefore there's no reason to worry about him, and he's told us that our life purpose is actually to be with him, 
then it is also true that everything that we then worry about is not the point of life and is distracting us to the point of life. He makes it so simple for us. And that is that life is wrapped up in a relationship with him. And when we are near the Lord, we find peace. The second thing that he says that worry proves is that we doubt God's faithfulness. He tells us to go on a nature walk. He says, look, go out and look at the birds. Look at the birds. The birds, they don't fret. They don't bite their nails. They don't hoard. No, they trust that God is going to be God tomorrow. That God who is faithful today is going to be faithful tomorrow. You know, it's interesting. This passage was actually one that was really significant to the reason why I now live in Raleigh. Why my family lives and and our kids were even born in Raleigh. You see, some 22 years ago, we lived in St. Louis. My wife and I, um, we were married for four, four or five months, and we felt like God was calling us to come out to Wake Forest to go to seminary. We didn't know anybody here. We didn't have very much money. At the time, it made $1,000 a month. And so it wasn't a whole lot. And so we didn't have a whole lot. We didn't have anybody here that we knew of, and yet we believed that God wanted us to come. And I began to become worried. And I remember one particular day I was out on a walk, which I love to do. And even, even when I was uh, 22, 23 years old, I love to walk. And I, while I'm out walking and I'm worrying about everything that is doomed, that, like, like all that can go wrong in loading everything up that we have into a car and driving all the way across the country, to a place that we really don't know anything about. There's nobody here that we knew. There was no church family. We didn't have a place to live at the time. No jobs. And I just remember thinking, God, I think I've lost my mind. But I believe that you want us to do this. But how is this going to work? And suddenly, I see a bird. There's a bird. He's literally, he's right in the middle of the walkway that I'm walking down. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, look at that bird. And I keep walking. And the bird, instead of flying away, it just moves down the path. So the closer that I get to the bird, the, like the further that it moves, but it stays on the sidewalk. And I just remember thinking at that moment in time, I believe it was the Lord. He looked at me and he looked at this text and a text that was so pivotal to us. And he says, Brian, is not your life worth more to me than that bird? And so we did. We loaded everything up we had except for a few pieces of furniture which were shipped out here on a truck. Everything into a four-door car. That's everything we had. We drove out to North Carolina and we wondered how are we going to get a job? And so we show up at the employment office at the seminary. His name was Bill Simmer. He's the director at the time over student life. And he looks at Tabitha, my wife, and says, do you need a job? And she said, well, we do. And he immediately hires her for a job. We thought, wow, the Lord provided that quickly. And a few days later, I receive a phone call. And for many in our church family, you won't know this name. Those of you who have been here for a while, you will. But the phone rings and I pick it up and he says, hello, this is Charles Fant. You don't know who I am, but I'm a pastor at Providence. And I don't know you and you don't know me but I want to hire you as my intern. 
And that's how we came to Providence 22 years ago. God just continued to provide over and over and over, even to this day. You think about this for a second. Just think about the love of God for you. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what that means? He didn't die for the birds. He died for you. You are of more value to him even than birds. And then he goes on and he says, now let's go out to the flowers. Look at this lily. He says, just look at the lilies. Just consider how much beauty that I've placed within these lilies. So I want you to know that even Solomon in all of his glory, the richest king in the entire Bible, who was arrayed with all kinds of splendor, he says, even Solomon was not as decked out as I allow these lilies. And then he goes to a third image and he goes, just think about this for a second. He says, if God so clothes the grass of the field. Now the grass of the field, that comes up in the morning and oftentimes it's dead by night or the next day. Heat kills it so quickly. And this is amazing to me. You look at this picture and God actually fills the wild grass with beautiful flowers. And he does so in order to prove this that he loves to adorn that which he loves. He knows it's going to die. And yet still he says, you know what? I want to add some color. I want to add some beauty to this. And he says, will he not clothe you even more so? And so God in all of his grace, he's saying, look, I, I promise you that I'm going to be faithful to you. I mean, you do know that he cares for you deeply, right? Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15. This is how God speaks of his care for us. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, and yet I will not forget you. What an amazing picture that you could literally have a mother who's currently nursing a little baby. And because of the time sitting there that it takes to actually feed that baby, that the mind of the mom may actually get distracted and forget what's happening and get up to move. And therefore, remember, oh, wait a minute. There's a baby who's eating right here. God says, that's a possibility. But let me tell you what's not a possibility. I will never forget you. Ever. I'll never forget you. Wherever you're at. I know some of you have lost a job. Some of you have been furloughed from your job. Some of you are unemployed. He has not forgotten you. And so worry, it shows that we've lost sight of our purpose and that we doubt God's faithfulness. And there's another thing. He says that worry proves that we're playing God. Worry, Jesus says you shouldn't do this because what worry proves is that you're actually pretending to be God. We're not very good at this. You see, worry is evidence that the throne is simply too heavy for us, even in our imaginary world. You see, there's only one king and that one king never fears. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. God is not afraid. He is the only one who can sit on the throne of heaven and rule all of heaven and all of earth and have no tinge of anxiety within his heart. He never frets. He never worries. He's never concerned. His will is never thwarted. He is the only one who fits on the throne. But when we try to play God, Jesus says in verse 27, not only can we not add a single hour to our life, 
in verse 34, not only do we sub, cannot subtract any pain from tomorrow, but the only thing that we can do when we try to sit on the throne and worry is get tired ourselves. That's the only thing we can accomplish when we're on the throne. When we're on the throne of God, trying to rule our imaginary world, the only thing we accomplish is we get weary. And so Jesus says, don't do this. There's one other thing that worry proves, and that is that we need to grow. That we need to grow. Notice what he says in verse 31. He says, do not be anxious, saying, what are we going to eat? And what should we drink? And what shall we wear? And then he says something, and it's kind of an indictment upon us. He says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. Now, I realize that in our context today, that we're Gentiles. If you're not a Jewish person, you're a Gentile. Jesus was not actually slandering Gentiles at this time. He's actually, this is a word at this point in time that the Jews were the one who actually had the revelation of God. Jesus was speaking to the Jews. And so in the context of the New Testament, when it speaks about Gentiles in this way, he's simply speaking of those who have never heard the gospel, those who are far from God, those who are trying to earn their way to heaven, and yet they can't. In other words, what he's saying here is this. That when we worry, we're doing something that is only consistent with somebody who's an atheist or someone who does not have a relationship with God. When we worry, it says that we're simply too close to where Jesus found us when he saved us. That we've not grown very far. You see, at one point in time, we, we had every right to worry. In fact, not just right, we had every need to worry. Everybody in this world right now that does not have a relationship with God the Father through the Son should worry. For the wrath of God remains on that person. And then we trusted in Jesus Christ who died on a cross and rose from the dead. He brought us into his family. He adopted us into his family. He made us sons and daughters. He, he forgave us of our sin. He he gave us his righteousness. A new relationship began. All the promises within the scripture that he's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. We can fear not for he's our God. Be not dismayed. No need to be dismayed because he's our God. He's, he says, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And when we worry, it's as if we have not been given all the promises. It's as if we've not entered into a relationship with God the Father. It's, it's as if we're treating things and treating the world and managing our life and managing our situation as though we were still an unbeliever, as though Jesus had not died for us, as though he had not risen from the dead. You see, when we worry, it's a significant thing. And so let me encourage you with a word of application, and it's this. Let's resist worry as seriously as Jesus addressed it. Don't justify your worry. Don't, don't, don't explain it away. Just confess it. Confess it to him as sin. You may need to seek help. You need to seek a friend. Just say, I need you to pray for me because I'm worried, and I, 
I'm having a hard time. I'm having a hard time to get on top of that worry so that it doesn't consume me. You see, when you resist worry, this is something that's so important, though. This is the next point, is that, is that when we resist worry, it's sort of like pulling a weed. And that is that the hole that remains, it must be filled with something of equal or greater density or else the worry will return. And so this is what Jesus says in verse 31, 32, and 33. And that is that he invites us to seek his kingdom and righteousness. You see, if, if I could boil the whole sermon down to one sentence, it's this. You can find peace by actually resisting anxiety by seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. This is what he says. He says, do not be anxious as the Gentiles do. It says, for they seek. Now in the Bible, the equivalent word for seek is the word priority. We use the word priorities. What are your priorities? What's priority one? In the Bible, it's what are you seeking first? That's priority number one. And he says that people who are outside of a relationship with God, the priority of their life first is to say, how am I going to eat? How am I going to drink? And how am I going to get clothes? Why? Because I need to stay alive. That becomes the purpose of life. But then for those of us, he says, but this is not true of you. You're coming into a kingdom that's ruled by a king that says he's going to be faithful to you tomorrow and the next day and the next day with all the promises that he's ever mentioned. And so he says what? Seek first his kingdom. What does that mean? It means to prioritize your relationship with Christ, to prioritize his word, to prioritize prayer, to prioritize his people, to prioritize the mission that he is on, and that is to glorify his son by getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is how we find peace in anxiety, is we put our hands and we put our heart to the greatest reason to the only reason that we're on the earth. And that's to have a relationship with God and to live in his kingdom. You see, every single one of us, every day of our life, we invest in either one of two kingdoms. You only have two choices. There's God's kingdom and there's our kingdom. This is how he says it in just a few verses before our text. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where, where thieves do not break in and steal. You see, God's kingdom is absolutely unshakable. And therefore, building our life upon his kingdom only creates peace and confidence. Every brick that you add with your life, every prayer, Every gift, every time you love somebody who is weak, every time you care for somebody who's in need and you're doing it for the glory of Jesus Christ, it's like adding a brick on top of a foundation that is absolutely unshakable. Well, that gives you peace. It gives you peace that you're not wasting your life, that you're not wasting your day, that you're not wasting your resources. But our kingdom, our kingdom is like a sandcastle. And here on the earth, right? Our kingdoms, they look differently. Some people, their sandcastle is pretty modest and other people, it's really elaborate. But whether it's elaborate or modest, building a sandcastle as you watch the tide rise is always going to create worry. And so my question is this, is 
Which kingdom are you building? Upon which kingdom are you investing your life? Which kingdom are you praying for the most these days? His kingdom and his glory to the ends of the earth? Or your retirement fund? Which kingdom has your heart? You see, if the kingdoms on this earth have your heart, you're going to live the rest of your life worrying. But if Jesus Christ is big and bold, if his glory is the most beautiful thing, it's the direction of your life, it's the, it's the treasure of your life, then what you'll find is that every time you make an investment on that kingdom, you're going to feel another wave, not of worry, but of peace. So let me finish with just a few applications. The first is, what is the first step to seeking his kingdom? And he tells us, he says, it's to seek his righteousness. It's to seek the righteousness that's required to enter this kingdom. You see, we should ask this question. It's so important. And that is, if God requires righteousness to enter heaven, then how to sinners enter. Even the apostle Paul asked the question, 1 Timothy 3.16, he goes, I got to tell you something, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. In other words, it is an absolute mystery. How can sinners get righteous enough, get godly enough in order to go to heaven? And he answers the question next, not by saying this is what we must do, but by showing us what Jesus did. You see, this is the whole thing. This is the gospel is that Jesus Christ knew we could not become godly enough. And so Jesus came to this earth. He lived without sin. He died for our sin. And then he died. He was buried and he rose from the dead. And when he rose, the conquering king with authority over life, over death, over everything. Jesus says, if you'll trust in me, I'll take away your sin and I'll give you my righteousness. And now you have enough godliness to get to heaven. Jesus is the only person on the earth on his own merit that went back up to heaven and said, I am here because of my merit, because of my godliness, because of my righteousness. And here's the amazing thing is that when we trust Jesus Christ, he imparts his own righteousness to us. And that gives us such tremendous peace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So let me encourage those of you. I know there's many of you who are listening right now and you have never trusted Christ. Would you? I encourage you to trust Christ this morning. You see, when we place our trust in Jesus by admitting that we need a Savior, by believing that he is an accomplished savior, the strong savior, by confessing him the Lord of all because he rose from the dead, we are forgiven, we're given righteousness. But there's another thing that the Bible says that we're given. He says that we are made fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You see what it says? We become citizens of his kingdom. We can now seek his kingdom because he has given his righteousness. And then for those of us who are believers, let me encourage you to reestablish Christ as king each time you worry. 
This is what I mean by this, right? Is that worry appears in every area of our life that is detached at that moment from Christ's preeminence. In other words, he is the one king of the world. But when we say, why don't you get off that throne? I want to sit on that throne when I think about this situation, whether it's my money or my kids or my job or my health or whatever it is. We sit on the throne, we begin to worry. So when worry arises, we must make, or I should say we, should, we, we must reestablish Christ as the king in that area of our life. And we do that by praying. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, this is, this is the amazing thing about God. He says, When you prove that you have actually trying to usurp my authority, in your imaginary world, and it proves to be too much, then all you have to do is pray. Because when you pray, what you're doing is you're saying, God, I can't, but you can. And all of a sudden, by praying, you're actually submitting again. You're yielding to my lordship over your life and over the area that you're worried about. So what is it that causes you concern today? Is your Concern primarily due to the fact that you're trying to be sovereign in that area of your life and you're simply not built to be sovereign. I encourage you this morning to reestablish Christ as the king of that area. And then the last thing is I want to encourage you to fight worry with an open Bible. He says, will he not clothe you? And then he says, oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. This is what he's doing here. You see, if you're in a car race, let's just say that you're a driver and suddenly the car in front of you, it just splashes all kinds of mud up on your windshield. And so you use the wipers and the wipers go across and all of a sudden, all it does is just smears things up. Now you can't see anything. You have one of two choices in that moment. I guess you have three. You can try to keep driving, which is not, which is not very wise. You can quit. Or you can stop the car, get out, and clean off the windshield. And this is God's plan when it comes to worry. Is when our heart becomes so distracted and there's mud all over the lens of our own faith. He says, what you need to do is you need to pause. And you need to take the water of my word. And you need to just wash the windshield afresh to remember the promises that I've given to you. You see, some of you, I know you're worried about a big decision that's in front of you. This is when it's really important to remember Psalm 32, verse 8, where God says, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. And there's some of you who are anxious about gray hair. I know some of you, you can't even have your hair colored right now, and so it's even showing, right? It's a big problem in the world today. But we're getting older. And maybe some of you, you're all anxious about getting older and getting gray, This is when you need the promise of God who says to us on Isaiah 46, verse 4, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. Some of you are anxious because you've sinned. Maybe sinned in a way that you never thought you would. Maybe sinned in a way that you thought, you know what, that sin is different. It's bigger. It's deeper than than really any other sins in my life. I don't know if God is going to be able to forgive 
This is when you need the promise of God's word in 1 John 1, 9 to wash over the windshield of your faith. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Whatever it is that you're worried about, there's a promise that relates directly to that. I encourage you today, whatever you're worried about, fight that battle with an open Bible. I know there's a million voices for your attention and for your heart today, but I encourage you this morning, draw near to Christ and he will give you peace. So let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your grace in our life. We thank you for the hope that we have. We thank you that we can sing it as well with our souls as we will now because you are the great king of heaven and earth. We thank you, Father, that you are the one who sits on the throne over all of heaven and over all of earth, and you do so rightly. It's fitting for you to be there. We yield our life to you as sovereign and ask that you would forgive us of our anxious, worried thoughts that propel us into all kinds of waves of fear. We ask, Father, that you would help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. I pray, Father, for those who have trusted Christ. I pray for those who are considering trusting Christ, God, that you would incline their hearts right now, Lord, to trust Jesus as their Savior. God, we love you. You have been good to us. We ask, Father, that this week, as we think about the things that disturb us, that you would remind us of your truth that we've heard, that you would wash over our hearts and that you would help us to experience peace. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.